Thank you, John. Well, I have to be honest with you. It's been a while since I've been this nervous to preach a sermon. But as I've tried to prepare and uh, get ready for this sermon, just the weight, the weight of God's truth that we're going to try to grasp and try to understand is a little bit overwhelming. And so I do sincerely pray that we would all, including myself, have, have a prepared heart and a prepared mind to see and perceive what, what God would have for us today. But if you'll remember, we, are, we, are, we were on a journey through the Gospel of Luke, and we're coming to the end of that journey, that journey as we've walked with Jesus through the Gospel. And it's been a long journey. Some of you are thinking, amen, it's been a long series. It's been a long journey but it's about to get more difficult. As we get closer to the end of Luke, you'll notice that the pace of the writing actually slows down. And we begin to see Jesus directing more of the events that are taking place around him. And you'll notice, and and, and we need to notice that, that Jesus is not only the center of the attention for this journey, he's the reason for the journey as well. And what we've seen is we've read through the gospel up to this point, we've seen that, that people have often flocked to Jesus. They've, they've gathered around him and, and they've all had their reasons. We've noticed that some of those reasons are good, some of those reasons are bad, but the question that is thrust upon us as we travel to the cross is how will we walk with Jesus? How will we respond to the demands and the calling of being a follower of Christ? But before we look into the answers to those questions, I think it would be worthwhile for us to review where we've been over the last couple of weeks. If you'll remember, two weeks ago, we journeyed with Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey, as crowds chanted and celebrated, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then last week, we traveled with Jesus to the upper room. It was one of the most beautiful sermons I've ever heard. Roman and Rig did a fantastic job. The imagery, my wife and I talked about this. We were unable to keep up with, with the imagery. Image after image after image, just, just screaming evidence of Christ and Christ crucified. So we, we, we looked at Jesus last week as he, as he celebrated in the upper room the Passover meal with his disciples. And we saw the significance of the Passover meal and the transformation of that meal with Jesus that we now call the Last Supper. And after the meal, we see Jesus travel just a very short distance to the Mount of Olives right outside of Jerusalem in the Garden of Gethsemane. And depending on how you look at it, it's either late Thursday night or it's early Friday morning. And Jesus is about to face his greatest and most difficult hour. Jesus is about to face the cross. And we call this day, as Kim talked about, we call this day Good Friday. 
we call it Good Friday based on the ancient use of that word good. That, that ancient word originally meant holy. So I want us to, to transport ourselves. I want us to, to move ourselves away from this, from this comfortable sanctuary to that night in the garden. Now this is not a garden adorned with beautiful flowers and shrubs in the shapes of animals. It's an ancient olive grove. And it's got olive trees growing all around it. It's a beautiful spot. It's a beautiful spot on the Mount of Olives. Now on this night, it would have been a full moon. And you gotta imagine this, this beautiful place, softly lit by a full moon. The quietness, the peacefulness. It was a peaceful place, but on this night, the peace is about to be interrupted. Just imagine you're in this, this moment of stillness, quiet. Suddenly, a mob ascends upon Jesus with torches, murmuring and, and, and harsh words as Jesus is there with his followers. And we see with shock that this crowd, this mob, is led by none other than Judas. And as this mob descends on Jesus and his followers, Judas has the audacity to approach our Savior and kiss him, identifying him as Jesus of Nazareth. We read uh, in Proverbs 27, we find that these words that profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, in a, in a moment of rashness, one of the disciples decides to draw his sword and he strikes and cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. And, and Jesus, I think in a little bit of frustration, picks up the ear from the ground and immediately heals the man because the crowd is actually on edge. And, and there's this, this heightened anxiety with the mob as they face off with Jesus and his disciples. Now, here's what is striking, shocking. Jesus willingly, willingly goes with the soldiers and those who have come to take him by force. And they take him to the, to the house of the high priest. And Luke tells us that the apostle Peter was actually following Jesus, following along with the crowd that had taken Jesus. And Peter is sitting in the, in the courtyard of the temple and he's by, by a charcoal fire. And we talked about the significance of that charcoal fire before. But he's standing there warming himself and he has asked three times if he's a follower of Jesus. And three times he says, I do not know the man. And I think in a moment of great conviction, Peter hears in the distance the rooster crow. And the text says in Luke twenty two sixty one that the, in that moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine? Can you imagine in the moment where you had the, the opportunity to express your greatest loyalty to Jesus, you faltered and you failed 
and he turned and made eye contact with you. Can you imagine? I think it's, it's easy to, to say and acknowledge that that would have been a tragic moment for Peter. A moment that would have overwhelmed him, would have been the, one of the worst moments, probably the worst moment of his life, a moment of failure, of fear, of faithlessness. Just imagine, church, how would you like your greatest moment of failure and faithlessness to be documented for millions upon millions of followers of the man that you denied to be documented and read and meditated on for years upon years upon years upon years? I think I'll pass. No, thank you. But that's where Peter finds himself. Now, we have that privilege to pass, but I think it does beg the question, how will you respond when you have a moment of failure of faith? How will you respond? Because Peter responds appropriately. Peter, in the moment of his rebellion, of his denial, he goes out and and the scriptures tell us that he wept bitterly. I can imagine that moment that that Peter felt exposed, he felt broken, he felt disloyal, he felt stupid. Jesus warned him that this would happen. And yet he still failed. I can imagine that that he's just, just falling into a depth of anguish that maybe we will never understand. And we know, but here's the beautiful thing, we know We know that this failure does not define Peter. We know that this betrayal wasn't the last word on the life of the disciple Peter. We know that that Peter went on after being restored by Christ to lead the church in Jerusalem. But the reality is that as Peter was outside weeping, Jesus is being mocked and he's being beaten by those who gathered at the high priest's house. And when day breaks in the early morning, they bring in the whole high council of priests and they begin to question Jesus to see if he's the Messiah. And they say that as they question him, that he speaks blasphemy. And then they proceed to take him before Pilate, who was the Roman governor. Pilate questions him before the council and he actually finds no basis for accusation against him. But the religious leaders, they're incensed, they're enraged, and they demand that he be punished. Now, Pilate doesn't know what to do with him, but then Pilate gets a a get-out-of-jail-free card when he finds out that Jesus is actually from Galilee. And so that excites Pilate because that means that he can pawn Jesus off to Herod, who was the Jewish ruler over Galilee. Now, Herod was actually excited to meet Jesus and to question him at length, but Jesus wouldn't answer him. Now, we need to remember that this is the same Herod that had John the Baptist killed. Now, when Jesus would not answer him, Herod begins to mock Jesus and he places a fine robe upon him and he has him beaten a second time. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. And again, Pilate tells the religious leaders that he finds no basis for accusation against him. So Pilate offered to have him flogged and beaten and released. But what does the crowd shout? Crucify! 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 
They want Jesus crucified. And they want a man named Barabbas released. And the word tells us that they say, away with this fellow, release Barabbas for us. Now this man had been put in prison for insurrection that had taken place in the city and he was put in prison for murder. Now I want you to reflect on that for a moment. Left to our own devices, we choose chaos and murder. We choose Barabbas. We choose insurrection. We choose murder. In the book of Matthew, we, we find that the name uh, for this murderer is actually Jesus Barabbas, a false Jesus. Isn't that ironic? When we have a, a chance to choose, we choose the false Jesus. In fact, uh, if, you, if you explore further, you find out that Barabbas actually means son of the father. So when we have our chance, many times we choose the man named the son of the father than, rather than pledge loyalty to the son of the Father. What are you going to do? Who are you going to choose? Which Jesus will you follow? Which Jesus will you confess your loyalty? So after the crowd demands crucifixion, Pilate actually gives in to the pressure of the people and he releases Barabbas and he sentences Jesus to death on the cross. Now, as they're leading Jesus to the cross, one of the soldiers grabs a man, a man named Simon of, of uh, Cyrus, and he forces him to carry Jesus' cross. And he, he would have carried the actual the horizontal beam of the cross. And we don't really know why he commanded that, but it, it most likely had to do with the fact that Jesus, we know, was beaten twice. More, more likely, he was beaten three times. And, and between the beating and the flogging and the whips across his chest and across his back, it would have been almost impossible for him to carry that beam under his own strength. Now here's what is interesting. This demand by the, by the Romans for Simon to carry the cross was actually a Roman practice called impressment, meaning that a Roman soldier had the right to impress upon someone to carry a burden for a mile. Jesus actually taught all that. Do you remember? So if someone demands for you to carry it for a mile, offer them two. We go on to read that, that Luke states that two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leader scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, he is, if he is the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, and they came coming up and offered him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They were also, there was also an inscription over his head, This is the king of the Jews. In those few verses, we see fulfillment of several prophecies. And we would be glad to share these with you later if you want to look these up on your own. It says that, that he is led between two criminals. That's found in Isaiah 53. That he was crucified. That's in Zechariah 12.10. That they cast lots for his clothing. You'll find that in Psalms 22. That the people were standing by and watching and mocking. That's Psalms 22.7 and 109.25. And that the soldiers offered sour wine. That is found in Psalms 69.21. And above him is a sign saying, this is the king of the Jews. Ironic, isn't it? 
that these same people mocking him challenge him to prove, give them a sign that he is who he says he is. And there's literally a sign hanging above his head. This is the king of the Jews. And so it says that Jesus on his right and his left, he has two criminals. And one of the criminals derides Jesus and actually mocks him. However, the other criminal rebukes him and says, do, not fear, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into my kingdom. Church, this is a beautiful moment. In a moment of, of horror, we have this beautiful moment. This, this moment was so weighty when I was reading and, and, and reviewing the sermon, I had to take a moment to stop. I had a sudden flare up of allergies as I thought about what I just witnessed. What we have seen is a beautiful example of how we should approach God. Here we have this criminal who by his own admission is being justly punished for his sins. And he sees Jesus for who he is. He doesn't try to justify. He doesn't try to barter. He doesn't try to argue. He sees Jesus for who he is. And in, a, in, in humility, asks for mercy. He asks for mercy. How often, church, are we tempted to ignore that example? How often do we try to justify or earn God's forgiveness like the Pharisees who were at the foot of the cross? How often do we try to hide our sin from God like Adam and Eve? People, we are criminals. We have broken God's law. And that we should, we, by the rules of justice, we should receive the same punishment that the thief on the cross is receiving when he calls out to God and says, have mercy. Give me mercy. King Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Today. Today. You will be with me in paradise. Sweet grace. Church, that is sweet grace. A man who by his own admission, is a criminal deserving of crucifixion, cries out to God and says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And instantly in that moment, Jesus turns to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. If only we could have learned from this thief to approach God in the same way. To acknowledge our brokenness, our sinfulness, 
and without hiding, without justifying, humbly approach God and ask him for mercy. It's in that midst that, that we see this moment in time in Luke come to a close. We read that it says it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until about three in the afternoon. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus crying out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowd who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. In Jesus' last words, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. People, how will you respond to Jesus on the cross? Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to see past everything and see you for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.